integrity is absolutely fundamental actually. If you don't have integrity, then you won't build trust. So integrity is the number one characteristic that you really need to have in this kind of organization. episode of the You and Job Finder Career podcast by Intolma. My name is Magnus Pucht and this is the podcast where we want to increase your chances for having a career with the United Nations, European Union, development banks, intergovernmental and non-governmental organizations. In this podcast we're talking to people having a remarkable career in this field and trying to get their stories about how they once entered, the choices that they made during their career challenges that they've faced and of course not least to hear what kind of advice they can give to us. So today we're going to talk to Anne Rennie from the Asian Development Bank. Anne is a person who made a transition from commercial banking into a career within international development, working with especially international finance institutions. It was truly a pleasure to talk to Anne, and as you will hear in the interview, she is definitely a person with a wealth of experience. So I hope you will enjoy this interview, and without further ado, here's Anne Brenny. Very excited about our guest here at the You and Job Find a Career podcast. She is someone who's been working at board and senior level for many years. And currently, she is the Deputy Director General for the Asian Development Bank and has had executive roles with the World Bank, the International Finance Corporation, IFC, and with DFID, the UK's Department for International Development, but also from the private sector. So I'm, I'm very happy and honored to welcome Anne Rennie. Anne, welcome, and so nice to have you with us. Oh, thank you very much, uh, Magnus. Actually, I should clarify, I'm one of the Deputy Director Generals, because there's, uh, there's a few of us here. So um, we all have different responsibilities. So right. uh, just to make it clear, because I know some people think <laughs> that that means I'm the number two in the organization, which actually I'm not. Um, but uh, anyway, very nice to speak with you. Great, thank you. Yeah, right. You you are responsible for human resources, right? That's right. I am. Perfect. Well, and that well, that was a very short presentation, which I in in most of it I hope was correct. But I would love to hear you, some more from you about about who you are. Okay. No, that sounds uh, good. Um, well, my background is a little bit kind of mixed because I I started off as a banker, in fact. I had 14 years in uh, line banking, operational banking, working in London. I'm originally a Brit. Um, I'm now a dual citizen, uh, American as well as British. But I, I had 14 years in uh, in banking, in all kind of areas of banking. Um, and uh, the way I got into uh, into the international development world was just by stumbling into it, really. Um, I At the time, I was on several boards and I'd left banking and had boot started working with Prince Charles with the Prince's Trust. Mm -hmm. And I was a board director for a big uh, recruitment company called Reed uh, and their HR director as well. And I got a call out of the blue one day 
um, from an organization called IFC. Right. Now, of course, everybody knows what the World Bank is, but uh, at least I, th I hope they do. But to me, I mean, IFC was an unknown organization. So I just thought they were calling. I did a lot of radio and television in those days. And I thought they were calling me to do some. I thought it was a, um, a, a communications company trying to ask me to do something. So I just ignored them for a couple of weeks. Right. <laughs> and then eventually I thought, well, maybe I better at least look them up and find out who they are. And I found out it was the International Finance Corporation, which is the private sector arm of the World Bank. Right. Um, and they were looking for people who had a kind of a banking background, uh, but also some someone uh, who, by that time I had moved into HR, who they wanted an HR person who had a banking and an HR background and who had lived in various developing countries um, and I had lived in seven developing countries growing up as a child born in Pakistan and living in various other places so oh, they thought that I fitted their profile yeah so they um, they called me and I hesitated a little bit about moving uh, to the States which is where they were headquartered where the World Bank is um, and uh, it was my husband who said come on you know You've always wanted to kind of uh, get back a little bit more into the sort of international uh, development type of world, which is what my father was in too. Mm -hmm. um, why not go for an interview? So I was interviewed and the rest is history. So after three years of their IFC, and then I moved to the World Bank itself. Um, and then I worked uh, for them and the IMF. And uh, I did quite a bit of work. Um, on a different grant uh, while I was in the World Bank and then afterwards for the African Development Bank, okay. working very closely with their uh, their president, Donald Kabaruka, mm. in terms of capacity building and restructuring. So a very strategic kind of HR type of role. Um, but uh, and, and then, um, uh, you know, it's a long story about how I ended up at ADB, but, but it kind of made sense at the time. Right. <laughs> I've been here, here three years now. Right, so okay. that kind of gives you a rough synopsis. Great, thank you. No, so so from hearing that, I mean, we can all understand that you have really good experience and knowledge about, especially the international finance institutions. So I'm looking right. forward to hearing more about that. But um, I'm curious about you, back and you, um, so you said mm -hmm. that you you had. Your father was working in international development when you were growing up, and you had yourself been living in seven countries when you grew up. Right, right. Well, actually, he was a, a diplomat, but he specialized in international aid, um, and he specialized particularly in uh, Africa and Asia, and, uh, and uh, he was um, really the, one of the, the sort of leading uh, proponents of how to change the way that aid is uh, is delivered and so forth. He ended up as an ambassador. His last couple of postings were in Zambia and in Bangladesh. Hmm. Um, and he'd been in various other places before that. But uh, he was heavily involved um, with uh, international uh, donors, with the World Bank, IFIs, the regional development banks, and, uh, and various NGOs. Um, so I kind of... Uh, uh, kind of grew up in that kind of environment and uh, I never I mean I kind of went fell into banking but then I always was missing something mm. you know there was something that wasn't there 
uh, as you know, banking, especially commercial investment banking, is pretty hard-nosed, has mm. a bottom line. Mm. And uh, the kind of the people element seemed to not be there mm. in, uh, in a way I'd seen when I was growing up. So I was kind of doing things with my head, but not my heart, shall we say. Right. So it was very natural to move uh, into, uh, into the World Bank group mm. when I did move there in 1995. Right. Well, be very interesting. So, so you had, a, I can understand, a, a very a positive perspective of international development, even though you had been working for a number of years within the, the private sector. But so right. after all these years within the private sector and curious about joining yourself, the sort of international development, using your skills and knowledge, mm-hmm. when you finally went to IFC, um, Mm-hmm. What were there anything that you didn't expect? I mean, working in this yeah. working in this field, what, were there any major differences that you can spot? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, it was in terms of the various career moves I made during my uh, career. That was the biggest shock to me. Actually, it was very different from what I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I kind of had the impression because it was IFC. And that it was the, the private sector arm of right. the World Bank, that it would be like the private sector. Hmm. But no, not at all. Um, it uh, is or was. I mean, I, it's changed maybe now. But uh, when I joined, it was uh, it was much more kind of consensus oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you couldn't just write a memo and send it out. You had to consult everybody, hmm. um, and it would go up and down. And also, the other thing. I was I found it very political um, and political with a big P and a little P. I mean, obviously, in the private sector, it's quite political when it comes to organizational politics, too. Mm-hmm. But this also had an overlay of, of other types of politics, you know, nationality politics, mm-hmm. uh, you know, having different types of people coming in from different countries. Um, very, um, very complex, much more complex than I thought mm-hmm. um, and quite difficult. I found it very difficult initially to navigate hmm. until I figured out the system. Okay. Well, the um, I, I'm coming back to those um, strategies that you used <laughs> for, for navigating because I think sure. that's, that's interesting to hear. But I want to jump back to okay. Asian Development Bank. We, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, of course, well known to many of our listeners as one of the major international finance, financial institutions. But also, I'm sure that the, there's mm-hmm. many of those who are not so um, what, know so much about what you do. So, could you please say a few words about that? Or about uh, ADB? Yes, please. Itself? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. Now, ADB is one of the uh, regional development banks, um, and is set up in a very similar kind of fashion. Uh, it's owned by a number of governments. In our case, we have uh, 67 member governments, um, about half a regional and half a non-regional. Hmm. And by that, I mean um, the regional ones are all the Asian countries plus uh, very specific Pacific nations, because hmm. um, we cover the Pacific as well. Um, and then the non-regionals are most of the European countries, and uh, North America and Canada, um, and they have, uh, and Australia, well, Australia is part of the region, I guess, 
but it's not a developing country. No. Um, and they have, uh, so we have 12 board members that represent all of those 67 countries. Um, and our, our scope covers everything from, uh, we provide loans, grants, and technical assistance in a variety of different areas, um, primarily infrastructure, but also health and education, uh, increasingly regional cooperation, you know, uh, big projects across um, country boundaries, um, and now much more strategic projects that involve climate change, sustainable cities, um, and uh, public-private partnership operations. In other words, working with the private sector as well. So uh, it's um, an organisation that, like the other MDBs, gets involved when there's no other sources of finance or assistance. Mm. Um, which is an interesting, it's a plus and a minus because we can be a catalyst for that. But then we also find ourselves in a way kind of competing with the private sector too. And we have to keep reminding ourselves that we're not there to compete with them, but to complement them Mm. in providing the support that these uh, countries need. Right. So does that give you a kind of a little bit of an idea? I hope the listeners will kind of get a a kind of a sense of it. And by the way, our countries that uh, we cover range from Afghanistan on the one hand and all the stands around there to the Pacific Islands of Fiji, Samoa um, and uh, Vanuatu. And these ones that are hit a lot by by climate change and uh, environmental issues. So increasingly, we're getting a lot more involved in um, related areas like uh, crisis management, uh, disaster management, um, environmental issues, um, uh, governance when it comes to countries that are in war zones and so forth, Mm. which I'm sure is very common to a lot of UN organizations as well. Right. So, I mean, that would also mean, of course, then you have a a broad need for a broad set of skill set within the bank. Yes, actually, when I when I talk about um, ADB at Career Fairs, I often use the analogy of the banyan tree because it kind of goes down well in Asia, at right. least uh, large parts of Asia. Uh, in that you need a kind of a thick trunk in a particular skill area or or multiple skills. So, for instance, you could be a specialist in roads and water and uh, uh, transport generally or whatever. It, it could be a number of different things, maybe just one of those things. But you also need the cross-cutting skills as well. So in other words, you need to, to know uh, one or more, um, preferably more, uh, of the countries that you're going to be working in. Mm. You know, we give priority to people who know those countries already. You don't have to be from those countries. You just have to at least work in them because um, we, we have very few people who come directly from uh, sort of the non-regional countries and who make that adaptation and also are credible. Uh, we do have some who have very specialist skills we bring in, but the cross-cutting skills are, for instance, being able to work across boundaries, work with governments, mm. uh, you know, adapt to these kind of countries, different situations, uh, be able to work in teams. We have very small teams. You've got to be able to do a lot um, because we're not the size of the World Bank, for example. Mm. So you have to get your hands dirty and uh, be able to work with people. You can't just close your door and work in your office all day mm. on your own. Right. So those are the kind of, you know, in a very broad nutshell, that's kind of what we're looking for. Mm. 
Excellent. Thank you. We'll come back to, to that as well. Um, mm-hmm. So going back to you, um, I mean, mm-hmm. you've had a, an extremely interesting career and, and um, um, was there anything, um, I mean, when you now look back, um, a story or an experience that you are specifically proud of or that has been rewarding for yeah. you in, in your career? Oh gosh, yes, there's been quite a few actually. Um, hmm. um, I think you know when I joined, when I moved over to the World Bank from IFC, um, we we had a new president coming in who just come in, and uh, I had started being the IFC person for all the reforms that he was carrying out, which are very similar to the reforms that the current World Bank president is doing now except we never got the bad publicity that uh, they've been having. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I then I moved to the World Bank itself, I became HR director there, uh, working for a vice president. Um, and so I had the mandate of implementing all these reforms. And believe me, they were all these reforms. I mean, the entire uh, bank changed, both in its operational side and the non-operational side. Mm-hmm. So every single thing on the HR side changed. Um, and simultaneously... Uh, we turned over 6,000 people, which doesn't sound too much, but when you only got, in those days, it was 10, 10 to 12,000, depending on the starting and end point. That's uh, uh, a lot of people. And my proudest uh, moment during all of that change was not having a single tribunal case. Mm. So you can imagine, we actually did it fairly scientifically and did it in one big um uh, one uh, very compressed time period, so it was extremely stressful for everybody because we had to do a lot uh, very fast. But I believe we did it very carefully, very scientifically, as far as one can do these things scientifically, of course, uh, providing a lot of help and advice and outplacement for the people who are leaving. Mm. Um, and uh, turned over many people and brought in, you know, completely new skills. Um, and then, you know, so my proudest moment of being able to do that in a very short timeline and also to not have the tribunal cases that often organizations get when they're uh, moving a lot of people out simultaneously. Mm. So I guess that was one of my uh, kind of proudest moments. But closer to to home here now, um, I have an HR group here of 110 people. So it's a little smaller than the World Bank in that sense. But 32 of them, which is a third of them, have just completed doing degree level qualifications, and we were the, we did it through CIPD, Chartered right. Institute of Personnel Development, mm-hmm. um, through distance learning and through uh, on-site uh, tuition, with a tutor coming here. Um, so we were kind of a prototype for this um, in Asia, and uh, 32 of them have now got degree. Um, they're well they're recognised as degrees in HR, which. Um, has taken them a year or a year and a half um, when they already had some HR qualifications, but this actually gives them a degree level qualification. Mm. So, and they just completed, and it's the first group ever, apparently, according to CIPD, whether in London, which is where they're based, or abroad, that uh, where all the um, all the individuals who went through this course came through with a, a qualification. So, you know, I'm trying to professionalize the function here. And uh, in some ways, that's almost the, the the biggest thing I'm 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 proud of because of 
you know, my staff being so wonderful and dedicated and hardworking, hmm. putting the time in to, to do this, you know, on top yeah. of their, their normal job. So uh, it may sound like a small thing, but to me, you know, I'm very, very proud of them all. I fully understand it. And then that's wonderful. I mean, not only for the individual development for your colleagues, but also, of course, with the mm. impact that that will have for the organization, I'm sure. Yes, and people are noticing it already. You know, people are much more professional, confident in their skills and their knowledge and their advice and so forth. Hmm. So, you know, the client orientation measures that we use were already improved a lot. Now we're getting kind of top scores on that. So I think it's made a big difference to them and already to the organization, actually. Right. So very pleased with that. Right. Yeah. Very good. So, you, I mean, the first thing that you mentioned when you did the change basically the whole the world bank um yeah makes me yeah. wonder i mean I, i'm sure that you have been dealing with change most of your career especially when you've been working with with hr um sure what would you say that ifis or, or international organizations from your experience are more changing more often because of the political um, governance of, or the political part of, of, mm. of these organizations or um, because I think that's also something that people hear a lot that well they are reorganized yeah. constantly but would you say that that's a reality or is that as common with, with that, any other mm. major organizations <laughs> actually um, it may seem like that you know all of our kind of organizations are changing a lot. And I think there is something to that in terms of the political changes. You know, every time you get a new president or whoever is the head, mm. uh, quite often they bring changes with them and they're changing over, you know, quite frequently every three, four, five years, whatever it happens to be. There is something in that. But actually, I don't think we do change as radically or as quickly as some of the private sector organizations mm. I mean, uh, when I used to work in banking, I worked for a very large bank that went from 25,000 to 100,000 people within two years. And then a couple of years after that, downsized again to pretty much the same level. Yeah, mm. uh, <laughs> that was pretty major yeah. and uh, bought, up, bought up other organizations all over the world. Uh, you know, we're not, we're not so uh, quick in, in changing, I think, as some organizations. Uh, but in some ways, it's tougher because we have a different kind of board. So mm. we have, in our case, you know, 67 governments that are watching what we do. Right. Plus the other thing I think that affects us, well, maybe it affects the private sector too these days, but, you know, uh, even though we don't have a bottom line, we're being looked at very closely, scrutinized for being as efficient as we possibly can. Mm. Um, and uh, so there are changes that come with that too in terms of streamlining, uh, doing things quicker and so forth. I personally don't think our kind of organizations do things quickly enough yet. Um, and the clients, are, you know, still want that to happen more. Um, but I know that for ADB, for example, amongst all the IFIs, ADB is regarded as the most efficient of all of the IFIs. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it, it's mostly good, um, but it also means that, um, you know, there's no fat you know, people are working flat out the whole time mm. because, you know, we've had to be really careful about uh, not staffing up. You have to really justify what you're doing the whole time. 
Right. Yeah. So, um, but we are, you know, very efficient and we get complimented on that in the press and the board and other places. Hmm. So, anyway, changes always are going along to restructure and make us as most efficient as we possibly can. Hmm. Yes. Well, great. Thank you. I think that's, that's the, um, good to have that clarification because I think that's expectations mm. are not uh, well or or what people perceive um being a mm. difference between private sector and, and um this international development sector is not as big as many people think in that sense no exactly right right yeah yeah no we have the same pressures and sometimes more because we have so many governments who are interested in uh, you know what we're doing and uh we have to account for to you know to all of them. Hmm. Um, so we have different pressures and uh, different pressures in the private sector, but there are a lot of similarities for sure. Hmm. Yeah. So, so going from the, um, your experience of all, all the stories that you are proud of, it would be now interesting to hear more about the types of challenges that you've faced. And, and I mean, we can understand that you've faced a number of challenges, but if if you could share yeah. a story about <laughs> something that was yeah, maybe one of the greatest challenges in your career for you or for or for your organization that you have to deal with. Um, I, I, can, I guess that I would put them around organizational culture and political kind, kind of culture. Mm. Um, the organizational culture being more hierarchical it's much more difficult to be innovative you know without having to go through these layers of people and uh, have uh, buy-in and consensus and things like that which in the private sector if you had a good idea you could generally run with it if it was a good good enough one you know in these kind of organizations ADB is no exception you have many people to persuade mm. um, so that's the biggest challenge but also um, nationality wise and sometimes that's also related to uh, politics too. You know, you have to have, we don't have quotas, of course, for different nationalities. I know some organizations do, we don't. Right. But it's somehow, you know, the biggest shareholders always push for their people and you end up, you know, uh, looking around the different departments and adding up, you know, how many X nationality you have versus Y nationality. Um, and especially at the top of the organization, that becomes more to the fore. You know, you have X number of Europeans and, or, and you haven't got any Americans or maybe you need a Japanese and then how many Indians and Chinese and others, you know, are missing at the top. Mm. So that that bit's quite tricky um, to manage because you're trying to do things on a fair and merit-based process. And I've introduced those uh, changes and reforms into ADB, but you always get the political pressure, you know, saying, well, when my person is, is the best they happen to be from this this particular nationality and you kind of have to push back so it's how do you get that trade-off and balance between um doing absolutely pure merit-based uh types of uh things uh whilst understanding you work for a very political organization and there's shareholders involved um so in a way that's the most challenging i i, th I find hmm. and obviously and we're coming back now to the the um, your strategies for for navigating in this culture. So, I mean, you have been successful in, mm. in in doing that. So, what have your what kind of strategies have you used yourself to be able to? I mean, the um, of course, 
have an impact in these organizations mm-hmm. that are hierarchical that you have to still be innovative of course yeah. but um mm. what have you how have you done that um i guess i mean the way i've been able to be successful is because i'm a good listener um and i have an open door policy um and i'm fair i'm really fair and i will go into bat for things that i believe in where i think if there's an unfairness mm. i'll really fight it and i've actually been quite pleasantly surprised that although you know i get battles of course um if you are really fair i mean if your principles based and you can explain it to people um you know you do get support and i have a you know huge support here in adb even though i you know i still have run-ins and and disputes and arguments with people but for instance even just this morning i had a um a, a person i don't know very well who came in and said oh Anne, you know i just want to say thank you for everything you've done and i said well what do you mean you know and i hardly knew this person he said well you know you you've intervened in very difficult disputes and you know fairness situations and bullying situations and where people you know wanted to be promoted and everybody knew that they were being pushed and you know you intervened and i just want to say thank you for your fairness and your objectivity and i think as a, an hr person that's probably the highest accolade you can have is being fair mm. and not having your own agenda and not you know you have to be i have to you know be completely impartial unbiased in that respect which you know everybody has their natural biases um but you you have to rise above that because you're dealing with so many different uh, uh points of view and nationalities and backgrounds and so forth so i always check myself all the time when i'm in meetings or writing papers or or just listening to people that everybody's got a point of view it might not be your point of view but it's a point of view um and there is a you know there is a principle behind all of this mm. so i think that's what's made me successful mm. uh, um I, also i'm a trained coach i have a coaching qualifications from georgetown so i'm icf accredited um and i have to say in this kind of organization having coaching skills is really really key because you use i have a lot of coaches but i also use a lot of coaching techniques with people who aren't my coaches as well um and it really helps because people will open up um and kind of trust you a lot more i suppose is the word and that includes you know the, even the president here who will open up and uh you know just by the fact you listen and and use a kind of a coaching style yeah mm. so that also helps if you're an hr practitioner right so you but even for those who are not um, working in in hr i mean having a coaching style and and when you say coaching style would, sure. do you then mean that you are asking questions a lot um yeah let me let me just kind of say that what i try to do is to get people to solve their own issues hmm. uh or make it seem like it comes from them right uh, maybe rephrase it a little bit hmm. um so in other words that i find that people who are not so successful in these kinds of organizations are people who have very strong views and they'll try and impose them on other people mm. um and not be open to other people's views um and or and or if they're the boss try to resolve somebody's problems for them 
Right. Um, whereas I think the key in these kind of organizations in particular is to, and it is, it's not just HR as anybody, um, is to guide things in such a way that some, someone thinks they've come up with their own solution, mm. if that makes sense. Absolutely. You know, and you don't have to be a, a, you know, a leader out in front. You can lead from behind. Mm. So, you know, if somebody solves a big problem and it, you know it's you, or I know it's me, uh, that has really done this for them, you don't go around saying, well, I helped this person solve the problem. And sometimes it can be quite big problems as well. Um, you let them um, take the, uh, the the credit, um, and you don't. You know, you have to have the confidence to know that you've you're the one who's actually helped that to to be the case. But if the person thinks they sold it themselves, that's actually much more powerful and better for the organisation. Mm. Yeah. So um, that's much more a style I find that these organisations need because you need a lot more what i would call lion tamers rather than lions right. you know not so many people who are out there in front but the leaders who are eating from behind you know mm. helping people um, guiding people but not taking the front seat mm. yeah so so i mean for you i mean one of the ways the ways where you have to be successful have to be a good listener and uh, I would say empowering your colleagues a lot and, and have a lot of integrity mm -hmm. oh yeah integrity is absolutely fundamental actually um, because I mentioned earlier on this is a you know this kind of organization is very political in in various different ways um, if you don't have integrity yourself uh, you can get swept up in the politics and you can be a, you know a casualty Um, that's for sure. I've seen that happen so many times to people who didn't have integrity. They may have said, say one thing to one person, another thing to another person, or support whoever's in power at the time, or be nice to the, the top boss. Mm. Um, that kind of lack of integrity. And you can't do that. You have to still be polite and diplomatic. But if you're not, uh, you don't have integrity, then you won't build trust mm. and you won't be having people coming to you. Um, And uh, and you can't really then influence things. So integrity is the number one um, sort of uh, characteristic uh, that you need to have, or the competency you really need to have in this kind of organization. Mm. Great. So moving on from, from there, what would you say are the most important lessons that you would like to share with our listeners who, are, who wants to pursue an international development career? Um, okay, I, I think it it varies a little bit between whether you want to work for a UN organization or uh, international financial institution, um, because um, in fact we do get a lot of UN people apply here, and sometimes they're successful. Uh, but what we tend to look for is kind of hard operational skills in, for instance, the private sector or financial sector. Uh, in industry, um, in um, working, for instance, if you're working in roads and so forth, you might have been working for a large transport company. Uh, you might, if you're working in energy, you might have worked for a large energy company. Mm. Um, but, but having said that, you need to have experience of and or interest in developing countries. So it can't, you can't, you know, we, we wouldn't recruit somebody, at least it's quite rare for us to take in somebody Uh, who's, say, you know, a very strong energy 
expert that's only worked in a in a um, a non developing country mm-hmm. uh, we do do it sometimes if they're really really serious experts we do draw on people like that but if you haven't lived and worked um, and understand uh, the kind of countries you're going to be working on you're probably not going to be so successful so you have to have the, the strong technical strict skills and the knowledge and understanding of one or more uh, of these countries in Asia or Pacific um, and more on the soft skills you have to be very adaptable and able to kind of work with all sorts of different nationalities and the people who aren't successful are the people who come from one culture one country and have only ever worked with whatever their nationalities are around them um, and I'll just give you one quick example of that if for instance uh, we're headquartered here in the Philippines even though we cover um, six well cover 34 countries um, and two-thirds of the staff here are Filipino in Manila. Okay. Um, and, if you've, and if you've not worked with Filipinos, um, you may not realize, as, as some people who come here uh, have, to have a kind of a surprise, and um, any Filipinos listening may be able to identify with this, there's a very high uh, power-distance ratio, mm. uh, if you understand Hochstetter. And so one thing is, you know... Uh, individuals don't really speak up when they don't tell you what they think they won't say no and i'm stereotyping of course and it's not always the case <clears throat> but if you've only worked in say the u.s or i mean i don't want to name countries but no. in general you know other places right. it's it's uh it's very hard to adapt if you don't realize that people are very different from maybe the way you are uh, depending which country you come from mm. um and I think sometimes people get caught out a little bit. So you have to be uh, knowledgeable, adaptable, able to understand other people's cultures, points of view, things like that. Mm. Great. Thank you. So, I mean, um, since you are trying to or recruiting a lot of people then, in, I guess, in, in their mid-careers who've had a couple of years maybe from the private sectors, from different areas, mm-hmm. as you described, um, yes. how much do you assess or actually look at their motivation then to, to work for um, ADB? Oh, well, that's actually the number one criteria. So when we interview, uh, we always start off with looking at the motivation. Um, I have a, a very favorite, very simple opening uh, interview question, which I use a lot. I kind of adapt it a little bit, but it's it's more or less along the lines of you know why you why now and why this position, hmm. and we look for we look for the motivation and the fit in that very first question, hmm. and so if they just say oh well I fancy living in Asia for a while, okay that maybe that doesn't show the right motivation yeah, no. but if they say well you know I've always wanted to work for development and I have a background that makes me really curious about you know, expanding my skills in these kind of countries, blah, 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 then maybe they get a better chance. But I can't tell you how many people that we've done a first interview with who say, oh, well, I've always liked the idea of working in the Philippines or living in the Philippines or living in India. And it's kind of like, well, actually, just living in a country doesn't make you a development expert. Mm. Yeah? Um, Especially if you've never been there. So that's absolutely the number one and you have to then be able to demonstrate your fit uh with the organization and uh if you're too for instance impatient 
when I say we look at the private sector, we also do look at the public sector too. Hmm. Uh, but if you're very, if you want, uh, uh, you know, independence, results straight away, um, uh, you know, working with people like you, then don't work for an international organization. Hmm. Yeah, because they're going to be people who are not like you in any in all kinds of different ways. Um, so those are some of, some of the things we look for when we when we interview is uh, the fit, the motivation, the skills, the background, the interest in development, hmm. um, and uh, an ability, as I say, to uh, work across boundaries, work with teams, and be very adaptable because all kinds of things happen. Um, it's kind of, uh, I wouldn't say unstable, but especially working in the Philippines, which is the headquarters here, uh, you know, it's a country which is really a wonderful place, um, the Philippines, to work. But it's also a country which has typhoons, you know, it has all sorts of disasters mm. and people just kind of get on with their lives. They're very resilient. Mm. Um, so, you know, if you can tolerate stuff like that, um, then you're likely to be quite a good uh, fit for the organization. Great. Thank you, Anne. Well, um, if, if you then turn that around and, and you would mm -hmm. have to explain why, why should people come and work for ADB? Yeah, um, because because right now, Asia is one of the most fascinating continents to work in. Hmm. Uh, if you think about all the things that are happening right now, rapidly growing economies, all sorts of interesting things going on. If you're interested in climate change or environmental issues, of course, that's happening right here. Uh, um, and also every day there's changes, whether it's environmental, economic, financial, uh, if you look at the papers, it's just a fascinating place, and you're right in the heart of it. Um, plus the fact that the headquarters is in uh, Philippines. Uh, it's now a lower middle-income country, but pretty much, you know, you have poverty all around you. Um, you feel it, you breathe it, you see it. Mm. Um, but I mean that in a positive way, because it kind of enriches you. Mm. Uh, you know, we're not based in a developed country, we're in a developing country, but the Philippines you know, and the other Asian countries are very, very rich um, places in terms of the people, the things to do and see, and the fact that you could do, you could make a huge difference. Uh, and you're right here on the ground. And it doesn't take very long to fly from here to any of the other Asian countries. Um, so um, it's it's a real feeling of of um, of reward which I, got, I get here even more than some of the other organizations I work for because you're right here on the ground. Mm. So when you have a typhoon come through, you know, even if you're not working on that in operational terms as a project, you get involved anyway. Um, you know, you go off and you work on the, the food baskets and uh, pack people's trucks for them and help people. You know, you're, you're living that life of helping and improving people's lives you you're right here hmm. so um it's a very rewarding place from that perspective um and adb you know has made a big difference in uh, in a lot of the economies in asia um you know it's helping to pull people out of poverty big time um by you know large scale projects and even the ones that are smaller scale which then you can scale up um and you can see it you can really see it the impacts on it um you know, we're in all the new countries that are just opening up now, like Myanmar is the latest one, for example. Um, 
I don't know whether we'll open up in North Korea, but, you know, if it gets stable enough that we could go in, we'll probably be the first organization in there. Hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, working in real kind of frontier territories, you're seeing things kind of grow from nothing almost. Hmm. So it's a very rewarding um, organization and, and region to be working in. Hmm. Yep, uh, I think it's, it sounds extremely interesting. I mean, working with an organization that has a mission to um, remove completely poverty, make um, Asia and Pacific free yes. from poverty, right? And and you can see yes, that's right. You can see that development in that region. Yes, absolutely. You can see it really, literally in front of your eyes. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, and actually the headquarters here. Uh, we're the most environmentally friendly um, building in the whole of Manila because we, we have solar panels, we have geothermal energy, we recycle all our water, um, we have several floors full of uh, blankets and bedding and food uh, if there is a typhoon or an earthquake. Um, and so we're pretty self-sustaining mm. and, uh, you know, very well-built uh, building grounds and so forth. We eat all our own vegetables so we quite enjoy that kind of uh, demonstration effect on all of our clients, actually. Mm, and they're wonderful. always quite interested when they, yeah, when they walk into the building and they see all these, uh, you know, self-sustaining types of in, uh, energy and uh, uh, food production, things like that. Uh, they always get quite interested and excited about it. So that's also quite uh, an additional interesting thing for people when they come here. Absolutely. So you mentioned earlier that um, when we were talking more about sort of mid-career specialists who had operational and technical skills that you were recruiting, mm -hmm. but are you also recruiting more junior staff or do you have um, any type of, of youth program? Um, yes, we, we have a young professional program mm -hmm. like most of the other uh, IFIs <clears throat> and we do that once a year we just actually finished we just made the offers to the latest batch <coughs> of recruits and they're aged up to 32 uh, you have to have four or five years experience of working in different areas and they don't need to be full-time jobs they could be internships or uh, assignments through universities and things like that as well but you have to have at least a kind of a master's level degree um, we also have an internship program, uh, which is fairly extensive, actually. Um, and you have to be working, you have to be uh, signed up for a master's level program. So you have to have done at least one undergraduate degree. And then as either as part of your master's or in between uh, the undergraduate and the master's, uh, you can come here and do an assignment as, a, as an intern. Um, and that actually um, helps you later on to get a job um, in our kind of organization. So uh, quite a few of the um, young professionals who recruited over the years were here, you know, some years before as an intern right. uh, in their sort of, say, early 20s and then in their late 20s, early 30s, they're, they're applying for the YP program and they definitely have, a, have an advantage over other people. But it gives them an advantage also for, you know, some of the UN organizations and the other IFIs as well. So the other IFIs pick up a number of our interns mm -hmm. um, because they were able to show the experience of working with us for a while. Um, and the departments choose their own. So HR really doesn't get in, that much involved except for 
facilitating the process hmm. and and making sure that you know that uh, that there are enough uh, there's enough dem- supply to meet the demand and so forth. Which I mean, usually you have many people applying, so. Hmm. Um, but it works quite well because the departments you know, do the interviews themselves and they'll contact them and really it depends on their needs. Hmm. Um, and But I would encourage anyone who's interested in that to look on our website because we have a very good website and also on LinkedIn we have a careers page which has uh, you know real people talking about their real jobs at all levels basically. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> Great. So, so and uh, yeah. So, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Oh, carry on. So if if you look at maybe the the coming one or two to three years, are there any specific mm-hmm. sort of skills gaps that you have identified that you are specifically looking for? Um, yeah, we're definitely um, moving more. We we actually are very lucky because we're going to be scaling up. We have um, combined our two funding sources, which gives us the capacity to expand by fifty percent. Um, and we're just proving to the board that we're even more efficient than we were before, before then uh, ramping up in terms of staffing. Um, and our concentration is going to be in several areas. One is the private sector. Uh, the other one is uh, public-private partnerships, mm. um, climate change, um, livable cities or sustainable cities. Mm. Um and uh, and the environment uh, kind of the, the the kind of the key areas um but we also have started building up uh health and education quite a bit too which used to be you know take a bit of a back seat to some of the other areas but they're now uh, increasingly important because um we we want to have teams that cut across all these different areas together um so for instance you might be a um a, uh, a transport specialist, but you'll be working maybe with education specialists as roads are built and schools are built and uh, and ways of getting the kids to school along right. the roads. Right. Just to give you an example of mm. how they get they get combined. Exactly. Um, so those are kind of the areas we're looking for. Mm. Wonderful. And I'm I'm looking at the time now. I can see that we have been talking for quite a while. So I want to respect your time. But um, okay, yes. B- before mm-hmm. we end, do you, um, do you have any final tips that you would like to share with our listeners? Any advice for people who are interested in 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 this type of career? Um, maybe just a couple of tips. Uh, one is never burn your bridges, because it's a very small world. Anybody who works in this kind of world, um, you know, you never know because I'm always seeing people I worked with before in other organizations. Mm. And, uh, you know, if you storm off in a rage because you don't like working in a particular organization, guess what? You know, chances are you'll end up with your boss or your colleague the, um, in another organization. Um, right. It's a very small world. So, hmm. <laughs> so don't burn your bridges. Never, never make enemies in that respect. Yeah, um, particularly in this kind of a world. Right. Uh, yeah, and the other thing is, don't you know? Make sure you have a good work-life balance because sometimes it can get stressful for all kinds of reasons, not just the volume of work, but because it might be too hot or it's raining so much, it's flooding or whatever it happens to be. Hmm. So you have to have some outlets, and it's perfectly fine, especially in, in this organisation here, to have a good work-life balance where you might, you know, spend the weekend sailing or diving or travelling or doing something with your family um and it's okay 
it's not like the private sector sometimes when you're expected to work 24 hours a day hmm. but it's even more important to do that in this kind of environment to have that break and you know have something uh, an interest and a hobby or or some things you can do outside of the work itself hmm. so that's kind of a bit of advice that I would give for this kind of organization and the other thing is I suppose the final thing is just be open-minded because hmm. um, especially living in a developing country too uh, you know always expect the unexpected right. uh, and if you're too rigid in the way you look at the world and the what you expect from the world it's a problem so I mean I guess I would end by saying you know be a cup half full person um, rather right. than a cup half empty. No, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Be positive. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. So anyway, so that's uh, what I would suggest. Excellent. Thank you so much, Anne. Thank you for being with us today and for being willing to share all of your insights and experiences. It's been truly valuable. So um, thank you so much. Okay, well, you're very welcome, Magnus. Thanks for your time, too. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Anne Brenny from the Asian Development Bank. Anne, thank you so much for joining the show. Once again, I also want to thank those of you who's been sending us feedback. We really appreciate that and really happy to hear that you are appreciate what we're doing. Keep those feedback coming. You can send us tips on questions that you would like us to ask our guests or anything else. You can always reach us via Twitter at UNJobFinder, via facebook.com forward slash UNJobFinder, or via the contact forum that you'll find at UNJobFinder.org forward slash contact. We also want to remind you again that if you want to be sure to receive all these new episodes, we advise you to subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud or Stitcher. Showing what you think of this show and leaving an honest review on iTunes is something that we really appreciate. You know that you will be able to find all the show notes and transcript of the show at uinjobfinder.org forward slash podcast. So thank you so much for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.